passage this morning is Galatians chapter 3, 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's awesome to be with you this morning. As you've already heard, we are in Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to that passage. Um, We are going to be unpacking that this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some up front here on the side table. We really encourage people to have one with them and to follow through. We also have handy-dandy little note sheets uh, where you can follow on and make some notes uh, during the message today. Those are important just for us to be able to remember things that are said, even though you can go and listen to the podcast, but also we have missional community groups throughout the week where we get together as family, we eat food together. Uh, we then unpack. We actually ask questions about what was preached on Sunday, uh, what it meant, what we didn't understand, and we also go deeper in the Word of God, which is really helpful. So I would really encourage that as well. Um, I, I want to pray before we start again this morning, which is typically what we do. Uh, and then I, I have a little bit of a preface, actually, because God put something on my heart later in this week. I think it fits into today's message, but also last night I couldn't sleep because he, he brought it back to my mind, and I want to share it with you. So pray with me, would you first, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you so much for this day. Lord, thank you that um, you are the one uh, who calls us to be here. Uh, Father, we don't come here out of any obligation or because we, we expect that because we're here, you're going to love us more or accept us or approve of us. We're, we're here because we want to know you. We want to know who you are, truly know who you are and what you've done. And you, you are the one who is drawing people and bringing people to these gatherings of your sons and daughters. And so, Father, we just pray today that we would all just sense that it is you that is present here. It is you who is speaking to us. It is you who loves us more than anything else and more than anyone else. And, Father, I just pray that that would just permeate our hearts today, that we would hear these words, very challenging words that we hear today, but we would hear them as coming from you, a loving, merciful, and gracious God. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So here, here's my thought. It's kind of a preface. Uh, it, it's, uh, during the week, I, I ran into some people, just some conversations uh, about conversations people have been having with uh, people in the community, people who do, do not know Jesus. And uh, one of the things that came out of that was just how much in our culture, in our world today, people misunderstand about God. How much they misunderstand about the Bible, about what it actually says. And, you know, obviously as a, as a preacher, as your pastor, that's something that's always on my mind is, is to communicate it in such a way that we actually know what it says and what it means. But I, I've been thinking about it, and, and one of the thoughts I had is twofold. One is that really, at the end of the day, um, we, the church are responsible for what people know or don't know. Amen? We are. And I don't mean that to say that, that we're, we're bad or, or whatever, but, but truthfully, uh, 
I've also been seeing some things over the last couple of weeks, reflections of various ministries that have gone over the last couple of decades that Janice and I were invited into and so forth, and, and just some of the teachings that were part of those things that were so damaging, so damaging to people's minds and hearts about who God is and what this is all about. And I, I find it rather pertinent to what we're looking at in Galatians, because Galatians is all about, Paul is writing to a group of people and he's saying to them, It's just Jesus, guys. Nothing else. There's nothing else that you need to do to get saved. Or once you're saved, there's nothing more that you need to do. It's just faith in Christ. His finished work on the cross. It's a big done. So I just want to encourage us today as we look at this passage, because this is a biggie. This really is. I say that quite often, don't I? I know I'm guilty. But it's true. This is a big one. But here's what I want us to think about as we approach it today so that the Holy Spirit will really communicate to us, is that the Word of God, and I know most of you know this, but let's be reminded of this, is so counter-cultural. It's so completely counter to the way that we think. And so it's, it's obvious, it's one of the reasons why is, as believers, we, we find it actually, if we're in it and we're listening to it and we're trying to be led by the Holy Spirit, we find it more and more and more, or we should anyway, revelation of who God is. And every week we should walk away, or every time we're in a Bible study, we should walk away going, wow, that's more about God that that I understand now that I didn't before. And I see things in a new way. And I'll tell you what, if you're at the point where you think you've got it all figured out, (laughs) you're in trouble. I'm in trouble if we get to that point. So I just want to encourage us. That that's the point of all this. That's why we gather. We gather to worship him and, and to bring our thanks and our praise and our offerings to him. But also so that we can know him more deeply for ourselves personally so that our salvation is assured and we're confident in it. But also so that we can appropriately and truthfully reflect him, image him, and speak of him to people who don't know him. So that's my preface for you today. Let's be encouraged by that. We're on, we're on a journey here of learning. Nobody has reached that place yet. Not even the Apostle Paul would tell you that. Read his works. He, he constantly um, self-deprecates and says, I'm the least of all the apostles. So it's true of all of us. So let me preface. Uh, that's the preface. Let me get into the message today by asking this question. Interesting little approach to this passage today. But I'm pretty sure that most of you in this room know what a logo is, right? Put up your hand. Do you know what a logo is? Right? You do, right? And I'm just going to show you a few. Just, I just want you to give an idea of what they're all about and so forth. And here's the point that, that I want to make just in the beginning. Notice that what I'm going to put on the screen is just the image of the brand without any text. It doesn't actually tell you who they are. It's just an image related to the brand. It's called their logo or their icon related to their logo. So here's the first one for you, right? So as soon as you see this, I'm sure that a few of you, and I just get beyond the mermaid and the pagan worship and all the rest of that stuff that apparently is there, you know, but just let's, right away, do you smell the roast? Do, do, do you feel like one? You know, we're serving a different brand out here, by the way, at the cafe at the Rock. It's actually superior, but right, I mean, that, that is the Starbucks logo, right? One of the most recognized images, by the way, in the whole world today is that... Here's another one for you. This puts a smile on your face, doesn't it? Why? Because, like, what is, it, what is it all about? It's about what? A happy meal, right? And, and it's because you deserve what? Speak up. <laughs> a heart attack. <laughs> a break today. Come on. 
you know, work with me here, would you? These images are interesting, aren't they? McDonald's, obviously. Then there's this one. How simple is that? Right? It's a, is it a check mark? What does it represent? Well, obviously, it represents a company by the name of Nike. And, of course, that name is taken again from a god. Um, it's interesting how we go those directions. But when they came up with this particular icon for their brand, do you remember, do you remember what their tagline was? What was it? Just do it. Look, see, you, got, you bought into this stuff. This is pretty good. This is awesome. One last one for you. And, of course, you all know that I'm probably going to show you this one next, right? It's this, this image here, right? This is an amazing image, of course. It is the Apple logo um, taken from where? The Garden of Eden. You'll notice that the apple has a bite out of it. That's kind of interesting, I would suggest. Don't you think? What was their big tagline when they actually... Uh, really started to promote their brand. It was what, what was it called? Think what? Different. Did God really say? The illusions, the, the, the contrast, what's going these are powerful images. The reason why I showed them to you is not to go into marketing or any of that kind of thing, not at all, but to show you that images are powerful in our culture. They're memorable. Companies spend millions and millions of dollars developing these icons and then protecting and promoting them. So what would you think is the most recognizable image ever in the history of the world? What would you think it is? Right. It's this image. It's the cross. It's the most known image on the planet. And and the interesting thing about this image is that the other images that I showed you, not too many people are actually going to probably have a little nugget or trinket on the end of a necklace for those icons, are they? Well, there are some Mac addicts that might, right? But, but this particular image is used more often on jewelry on human bodies and tattoos on human bodies than any other image in the history of civilization. So clearly, it, it's an important, important image. But my question for us today is, where, where, why? <laughs> why is this image so important to us today? Why is this image the definition in our world today of Christianity, and it speaks to what I was speaking about in the beginning. I, I think in our world today, sometimes we, we don't understand, and people who don't know God, don't know the gospel, they have really uh, false impressions of what this image is all about. Obviously, people who wear it, in some cases, without judging them wrongly, they have no idea why they're wearing it or what it truly means, right? Right? So the central person responsible, some of you may know this from history, the central person responsible for the use of the cross as a Christian icon is a man by the name of Constantine. Uh, And interesting to this, I I did some research on this, you might want to check it out. Prior to him, prior to this guy coming along, guess what the two most notable images were in drawings and in the church up until the time of Constantine? Anybody got an idea? A fish, exactly. I don't know who said that, but it was coming from over here. A fish. It's something you see on bumper stickers a lot these days, right? A fish was number one. Number two would have been doves, a dove. Those were the images that the church saw themselves as before Constantine. Now, Constantine was a Roman emperor from AD 306 to 337. And here's what happened. He claimed to have a vision. He, he was a little bit worried at this particular point in time in his reign about uh, war and about being conquered 
And uh, he was having dreams and visions about it, and he was quite worried about it. He'd also come to the position like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, millennia before him, who was no longer, he was no longer trusting the wisdom of his magicians and his charlatans in his court who were you know, giving him prophecies and, and warning him about wars and things that were going to happen. And so he actually prayed to God. He didn't know if there was a God, or, but he, you know, the church was there, particularly the Roman Catholic Church was really beginning to be formed at that particular time in a powerful way. And so he prayed, and he had this vision one day as he's out in his court, and he saw this vision of the noonday sun, and then off to the right of the sun, he saw in the sky a cross. And then he claims to have also seen an inscription that said, by this, conquer. By this symbol, he took it, conquer. And so that night he claims to have received a vision that told him that what he was to do was emblazon this image of the cross on the shields of his army, and then with God he would go into battle, and with this symbol he would conquer. And guess what happened? It happened. He went into war and he conquered in a major way, very successfully. And so... You know, being a guy who respected God, I guess, at that point in time, or at least some people think, I'm not so sure, to be honest with you, he decided at that point in time, he goes, well, I have to make Christianity the religion of the world, of the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what he did. He established the relationship between the Roman Catholic Church and the state, and that's where that all began. Now, my question is, do you see any problems with that? (laughs) I see a couple. The first problem with that is that the cross is not onward Christian soldiers. That's not what the cross is. That's where we get the crusades from. That's where that mindset was developed. Now, in our culture today, isn't it true that a lot of people will point back to Christianity and to that image and what resulted from that and say, well, yeah, that's Christianity. That's what the cross represents for me. (sighs) Makes sense, actually. It's not unreasonable for people to have come to that conclusion. But that is not the message of the cross. In the second, as I said, up until the time of Constantine, there were other images. But the cross, the cross up until the time of Constantine, it it was known more as an execution device. It was a gallows. It was a gas chamber. It was a firing squad. It wasn't about conquering. It was about being conquered. It wasn't about success. It was about abject failure and shame. That's what the cross was all about. And that's why, and that's what Paul is doing here in Galatians. He's taking us back and the Galatians back to the cross. And I mentioned this several years, weeks ago, pardon me, might seem like years ago, that we need to keep the cross in our rearview mirror. We need to keep the cross, the reality and the truth of the cross in our rearview mirror so that, A, we can reflect on what God has done. And so he started in chapter 3, verse 1, with these words. You guys remember it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who is it that has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And now after an excursus on Father Abraham, he returns to the cross of Christ. He's coming back to it to seal the deal, to make his point about the cross of Christ and how important and critical it is. And so I would sum it up for you today. Here's a little takeaway for you. You might want to tweet this. It's a little long. I think it's under 140 characters. I'm not positive. But it's, on the cross, Jesus, look at this, became like us before God so that we could become like him before God. Our message title today is No More Curses. 
No more curses. It's about the cross, and I hope to show you that in three ways. The need for the cross, the transaction at the cross, and the response to the cross. So let's look at verse 1 again as the need. We begin point one, the need. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law of the law and do them. So now as we begin to unpack this passage, I need to say this uh, up front and maybe ask this. Do you find these words that Jen read earlier, but the words in this passage a little troubling, <laughs> a little unsettling? I do. <laughs> I do. It's interesting, in many of the commentaries that I read about this, because I really wanted to make sure I got this right, uh, I was reading a number and rereading a number. I, I, I can't remember how many times it was that commentators made the point that this is a passage, it's actually a letter, but one of the passages that few preachers preach. We avoid this, apparently, <laughs> these kind of passages. It's one of the reasons why at the Rock Church we like to do books of the Bible and preach through books of the Bible is because then guys like me and people like you, we can't avoid this stuff, right? But it is one that's often avoided. You're not going to run around and go into churches that are preaching, hey, lift up your wallet and let's pray and God will fill it. This is not a passage they're going to take you to very often. Understand the point? It's troubling and it should be. And I think there's a, there, there's a, there's a problem with it that if we... If we just look at it that way, we, we, can, we can begin to squirm, we can begin un, become unsettled, we can, we can be worried about this being less than encouraging, but here's the deal. I really hope that you're going to see this today. I hope you're going to see that what we know about God is true. He is good to everyone all the time. He is loving. And so when he gives his word to us through his chosen vessels, his apostles and those who write his word... It's meant for good. It's beautiful. And in fact, here's what I want to ask you to do today. Remember that. He's loving. He is good. Don't turn out, tune out. Don't get scared. This is one of those passages where we really need to concentrate. So I'm just going to ask you that as a preface to, to think about that. So look at the word here at the beginning here, the word for, which can also be translated because. And so really these verses that follow are Paul's kind of conclusionary thing. And he does this often in his epistles where he, it looks like he's concluding. It's like me. You think I'm concluding a sermon? No, it's another 15, 20 minutes. But, but he does this often where he does it. But this is the point. He's coming to a conclusion of what he's been speaking about. And, and that was that last week he was, he was saying that, look, Father Abraham was a Christian before he became a Jew. That's what he really was teaching us last week. And what we meant by that is, is that Father Abraham was counted, it was counted to him as righteous, his faith in God before the people of Israel became a people, and 430 years before the law. In other words, faith alone in God's work in through a chosen one, a Messiah, a substitute who would come, was what brought Abraham to faith. And so now Paul's moving towards a conclusion. So four tells us that Paul is moving on to conclude his previous points. And to do that, he's going to focus on a couple of words. And the first word is that lovely word, curse. So I think this is another one of those reasons why we have a problem with passages like this, because this word is, or at least the definitions that we have today, when we think of a curse, when you think of a curse today, uh, some people, of course, immediately think of foul language, but most people also think of something like a hex, 
or a spell, right? Or a jinx. As kids, we used to jinx people, right? It was like curses on you, whatever. We were just kidding, but it's not actually that nice. Some of us might also think about B-grade or even C-grade movies, right? The curse of the whatever, fill in the blank, is what we think about when we hear those words. But the biblical meaning is actually something incredibly different. It's very different, and that's why it's important we study this. So you'll notice the quotation marks in in the passage from 10 to 14. You'll notice the quotation marks in verses 11 and 13 as they speak about curses. And that's because Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy. And in particular, he's quoting from two chapters, actually from much of the book, but two chapters in particular. And the two chapters are Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28. What's remarkable about those two chapters, if you go back and read them, and you should, we won't have time today to open them and go into them deeply, but in small group this week, we probably should, is what you're going to find out is that it's referring to a whole series of laws, right? It's those, when you're going through the Bible in a year, it's you get through these passages and like, oh, here we go, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, laws, right? And at first reading, it just seems so burdensome, right? But there's also these curses and blessings that we read. Now, here's what's really interesting. In chapter 28, I'll deal with that first. If you read that chapter, I believe it is, you're going to see that God basically says this. You do this, blessing. You do that, blessing. And then in the other chapter, it's all about, and if you don't do this, curse. If you don't do this, curse. And so again, when, when we read these things, there's a, oftentimes I think there's a great understanding, misunderstanding, because actually in that day, the people of Israel, to their credit, many things to their credit, they would have seen this very differently. And the Judaizers who were in Galatia at the time, trying to bewitch and lead the Galatian Gentiles astray, this is one of the ways, and again, Paul's preaching to them. He's trying to bring them along so that they will understand what's going on. They would have heard these verses and these chapters and went, oh, wait a second. We understand what that's all about. That's about covenant. That's about relationship. That's how they would have seen it. It was all covenantal language. In other words, it it, it had to do with a right or wrong relationship with God. Curses then were the result of a broken relationship or being cut off from God from a covenantal relationship with God. And so first of all, then, we must also understand why God's law. We've been over this before as a church, but let me just reiterate a couple of things. There's two primary reasons why God gave us the law. And I want to deal with the second first, uh, meaning the second in importance in my mind first, and that is that so it was so that we could understand that we cannot keep it. God gave us the law partly because what he wanted us to see was a, a set of rules and, and ways of the kingdom uh, to live in a proper and right relationship with him so that he would act, we would actually understand we can't do it. His hope was is that in, in us trying and flailing away a deal, we would see that we're not God. That, that his, his laws, the things that he requires of us, are so high, so perfect, so holy, so righteousness, it's beyond us. In other words, therefore, we need God. Because we'd walked away from him in the garden, and he's trying to draw us back into relationship. And so that was the, the, the real important and initial reason for the law. 
And so this is also why by failing to keep the law, we become under a curse. So second sounds, I think at this point, it sounds like we're kind of stuck, doesn't it, when we talk about being under curses? Um, Well, that leads back to the first reason, and that is this. God gave us the law not as a list of rules that were intended to make us um, act and look like utter failures. That's how sometimes people feel, like God gives us all these rules. Okay, so it's like we know we can't live up to it, we can't do it, and so what's his point? His point to make us feel like failures, feel like we're not good enough, that we're not acceptable, no matter how hard we try? No, no, that's not the reason that he gives those to us. Or or, or so that he can be an ogre, right? And so that every time we we fail and we we make a mistake and we sin and we do the wrong thinking and go zap, right? No, no. Actually, but that's, those are some of the thoughts, I think, that run through all of our minds, whether we're outside of Christ, not a Christian yet, thinking about it, or even in Christ, is we misunderstand why he's giving us these things. So hear this. It's because it is the key to understanding, frankly, the necessity of the cross, and is this. In the Bible, God's law is always, always, hear this, about covenant relationship. Again, read Deuteronomy 27, 28. Read it with this heart in mind. Because before, if you read it, it's like, I can't wait to get through this. Can we please get to a psalm or something in the New Testament that is more encouraging? Right? But read it now with that in mind. It's heavy going, but I think what you're going to see is what I say is true. God is pursuing a people. He's pursuing a people for himself who will love him and desire nothing more than a right right relationship with him. And so this law, this curse thing, it's all about a covenantal and right relationship with our God. And so again, look, it it all started in the garden, didn't it? How many times do I always do this to you, right? I always say like, hey, we need to go back to the garden to see how it happened. But that's where it started. And that is exactly why we need to go there and see that. Our relationship through Adam and Eve was first what? Broken with God. It was broken. The relationship between God and Adam and Eve where he came in in the coolness of the afternoon and and he walked with them and they had communion with him and everything was good, good, good and beautiful. No sin, no death, nothing. But things are broken. And, And everything was cursed as a result of that. Remember that back in Genesis? Adam and Eve's marriage relationship was never the same, which is why we have marriage struggles today. The first time we read the word curse in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, 14. And most of you will remember that's when God curses the serpent. That's the first curse. He curses the devil, the serpent, which then brings about a string of curses, which are related to that, between husband and wife, as well as our relationship to the earth, to God's creation itself. And it says this in Genesis 3, 17. And to Adam, he said, because, listen, look at this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife rather than whose voice? My voice. And have eaten of the tree of which, look again, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Look at this. That's law. Right there. The law was, that's a law, is it not? It's a command. Here's the part that drives me crazy when I think about it. Adam and Eve, I forgive you because I would have done the same thing if I was there. But the reality is they had one law. One law. God had to give us ten later 
right? And then in the meantime, we've made up all kinds of more laws, haven't we? Even in our culture today, we make up more and more laws. Why? Because we can't get people to keep laws. One law was given. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So I hope you see one very important thing from this. Do you see who's responsible for the broken relationship, for the curse? It's not God. It's me. It's you. It's us. We're the ones responsible for it. God created us to be in a loving and harmonious relationship with him, but we have all sinned and fallen away, Romans 3 tells us. He gave us the law as a basis for that kind of relationship with him, and yes, we knew he knew we couldn't be faithful to him in that relationship, and so before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly what we would need, and it is the cross. That's a loving, providential, and sovereign God, I would suggest to you. So now listen, before we move on, we need, we need, to, we need to get this really, really good, okay? Because listen, I, I want to suggest to you today, I've done this before, do it again. We all love laws, don't we? We all love laws. We all appeal to law in everything in our lives. But listen to me, hear me, especially in human relationships. Let's just look at the human marriage covenant relationship, for example, right? I mean, think about it from the perspective of when you were in that betrothal period. Hopefully, you went through a period like that, which is healthy, where you went through premarital counseling, right? And you had the opportunity to, to, to date one another, right? And there were those times when you'd go out for dinner and you were barely even holding hands yet. I know all of you did it exactly this way, right? <clears throat> okay, I got the t-shirt too, it's all right. But during those conversations, like, okay, so listen, let's just talk about law number one. Um, fidelity? Monogamy? How do you feel about that? <laughs> right? We, hey, did you have those conversations? Because those are kind of important to have before marriage. Just putting that out there. How about kids? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to have kids? Yeah. How many? Twelve? You know, like, seriously, like, you, you have those conversations, don't you? People have those conversations. One would hope. Unless, of course, we decide that we're just going to sleep together, live together, just start off, and then we're just going to wing it, and you know, we'll figure those things out as we go along, which, of course, always works out well, right? Point. In marriage relationships, now, I don't know about you guys, but in our home, I sleep on the left side of the bed. <clears throat> it's a law. Okay? <laughs> if we go to a hotel, it's like over there, Okay. No, it's actually her that decided that. I'm only kidding. But but we have these laws. Here's the point. You have them. We have them. We've come up with them. Each one of us have in our marriages, and they're good. But what's the point of them? The point of them is we've, we've, we've got a covenant relationship here. We've got an agreement. And if we keep those laws, what's the result? Blessing. I love you more. You do everything that I ask you to do. That's awesome. When you don't, (laughs) curses. Literally. That's the point. That, that, That stretches into our BFFs, doesn't it? Best friends forever. I learned that one a few years ago, right? Hashtag. But it does. Even in those relationships, we we have certain things. Like with a best friend forever, like if I call you and I need you right now, you'll be there. Like, I don't know if you actually believe that, but some people do about that kind of relationship. In every human area. Employer, employee, playing on a team, 
You're on defense, I'm on forward. You stay back there. Okay, there's laws, there's rules about how we... Community groups, we have laws. We have memorandums of understandings per se. You break one, we have a relationship problem. Get it? So we appeal to laws. But then God comes along and says, I've got a few. And we're like, wait a second. (laughs) Okay. We all live under laws in every relationship that we have, hoping that those laws will be faithfully kept by each party, and yet we are constantly disappointed. But hear me, we are also constantly disappointing. Amen? We are. We break even the laws that we commit ourselves to in human relationships. And so when laws are broken, we are what? We are cut off from one another. There's a cutting off. There's a break in the relationship that takes place. And so on the one hand, when laws are kept, as I've said, we have blessings. So here's one more thought for us on this. One more thought. When our earthly relationships get cut off, it's painful. Ever had a boyfriend, girlfriend, and broke up? Or had a marriage and broke up? Best friend forever and broke up? Those are really, really painful experiences. But as humans, I think we have this silly idea that we can just divorce ourselves from that relationship. We can just walk away, you know, dust our sandals off, and it's all going to be good. You know, we'll get over it. No, you won't. If you've been through that, we have lost a dear friend who was a friend or a lover or whatever it might have been. You don't get over it. But we have that silly thought. But here, here's our biggest problem. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is this. My choice to enter into a marriage is my choice. My choice to break up a marriage is my choice. Those are in human relationships. We have the choice. We, we can do whatever we want, we think. But the reality is this, and this is our biggest problem. Our relationship with God is not optional. If you're here today and you don't even know if you believe in God or if you want to believe in God and trust in God, it's actually not up to you. He is, he exists, and your relationship with him is actually not optional. We don't have to marry someone or be someone's best friend, but we do have to have a relationship with God. We were created by him and for him, and that relationship, as I've said a few times now, is not optional. And finally, here's why. You and I may be able to live without another person. You may actually be able to get on. You'll have pain. It'll hurt. You'll always have regrets in this life today, and you can live without them. You cannot live without God. You will die. You will die. So that's Paul's beginning point about curse. It's all related. That's why those quotation marks are there. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 and says, Now... He's like a lawyer here presenting his case to court. And he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Paul again quotes the Old Testament two more times in these verses as he attempts to seal the case about salvation by works versus faith alone in Christ alone. And his primary evidence is what he has proven, and that is that the law never justifies, but instead curses us. Verse 10 has already told us what God's verdict is 
if we attempt to gain his favor and approval through our own works. It says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. And so again, it's about we can't do it. We have to keep all of the law and do all of them. So the problem, Paul tells us, and we know is true, is that no one has ever kept them. Listen, that should be good news to you, okay? It's like God's just saying, like, like nobody has. It's not, okay, you're not horrible. I'm not an ogre. I'm not pointing out all your, your faults and so forth. It's okay. Well, it's not, but it's okay in this sense. No one has been able to do this, actually, except one person, except Jesus. Jesus was able to keep all these things. So please see this again. God tells us that he is holy, he is just, he is loving, and he wants you and I to be in a relationship with him. And to be in that relationship with him, he says, don't lie. Don't tell lies. If you always keep telling the truth, every time you tell the truth, guess what? Blessing. Blessing. But if you lie, curse. So do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet, covet do not be sexually immoral, do not forget to honor me and keep the Lord's day, the Sabbath, holy, or someday anyway. I love the summation of this whole point from Tim Keller. I'm just going to quote him. He says this, The law of God is never given just to be obeyed. The law of God always forms the stipulations for the basis of a relationship. And that's why there are curses and blessings. The curse is always the loss of relationship. The blessing is always the intimacy of relationship. I think that's awesome. It's beautiful. So there's one more key word that Paul sneaks in here <laughs> that is really, I think, most beautiful and applicable and important for us today. Notice he says, no one is justified, look at this, before God. Before God. This is really an important statement that he's making. It's subtle, but I don't want us to miss it. He's saying that no one, I think a couple things he's saying here. Number one, he's saying no one can stand before God at any time in their life and based on their works, plead their justice, plead for their salvation before him. No one can stand before him and do that. That's already been covered by Paul. We've already covered that. Secondly, this is difficult but needs to be heard. No one will be able to when they die either. No one who dies without Christ will be able to stand before the living God and plead their case. It's too late at that point. It's too late at that point. He's going on, though, and he says, and yet there's a deeper point. It's, it's about actually what Paul is trying to communicate here. It's about an open and transparent relationship. So some of us are obviously silly enough, like Adam and Eve, to think that you know, we, we can put fig leaves on ourselves and God's not going to see us do anything wrong. Right? And, and we can just live and behave however we want, and God's not going to see this. Let me just give you a little bit of an illustration to help make this point about before God, because it's about also when we're keeping laws with each other and being authentic and transparent with each other. Can you just imagine for a second that everyone in this room or a few people in this room had Spock-like tel- telepathy, right? The ability to be able to read your mind. 
Have you ever thought? I've had nightmares. I don't know you, right? Waking up and thinking that people could actually think what I just thought about them. Or thought that I wanted to say to them, but I didn't. Can you just imagine that for a second, that people would know exactly? And yet, you know, here's the crazy conundrum about that, and we all talk about wanting to be in community and being authentic and, you know, loving community. And, and here's the deal. I think the majority of us, we require that of others. We ask others to be completely authentic and transparent and open with us and honest with us, knowing that they're probably just like us and they're not, because we're not. That's what Paul's getting at here. Before God, we may think we can hide like Adam and Eve, but we can't. God, of course, sees everything. He sees everything. And so now I hope we, need, we do see from point one and understand the necessity for the cross. We are broken. We live in a broken world. Relationships are broken. We're contributing to that on a regular basis. They're fractured or fracturing. And for any of them to ever have the hope of lasting love and blessings, listen, we need the cross. We need the cross. That's point number one. Point number two, the transaction that happens at the cross, which is our blessing. It's this. Christ, it says, Paul says in verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This, is, this one verse is, this is definitely one of those verses where a lot of pastors, preachers in our world today are like, but not going there. Just not going there. Number one, because maybe they're not absolutely certain how to explain it, but also it, it's, it's, it, it's um, what's the word? Uh, uh, it's an indictment of us before God, but it's also a blessing, constantly a blessing in the midst of these curses. So we've seen why we need the cross now. What actually happened during the event on that day is what Paul wants to bring us to. Again, note at the end of the verse 13, quotations. Uh, Paul's again quoting from Moses from Deuteronomy, this time in the 21st chapter is what he's quoting from. And this was the practice in those days. Anyone who committed a covenantal relationship break... So anyone who is guilty of breaking one of God's laws, a covenant relationship law in that day, was sentenced to death. And the sentence to death was by stoning. So it was a public death, a public execution of someone who broke a covenant relationship, uh, any one of the covenant relationships that God had given at that time. That was, that was the penalty that had been given. And, and the practice was, once that person had died, physically died, they were then taken to the outskirts of the town or the outskirts of the village and hung on a tree. And that's where Paul's pulling this from. That's where he's getting this image, imagery from. This was part of their sentence, to be publicly hung on a tree, which was a sign that they were cursed by God. It was also a warning sign, wasn't it? To everyone else, like, this is what happens. It's pretty serious stuff. But Paul's point is, he wants to point us again to the cross of Christ. That's his whole point here. So now that background is important, but what we must see and understand is what Paul means by these words, by, by becoming a curse for us. I mean, what does that mean? That, that Christ redeemed us by himself becoming a curse for us. This is one of those places, but it's God's word and therefore, it's good, and it is especially so if we're willing to hear the truth that is intended to deliver 
This truth, I believe, is incredibly beautiful. And so this is not saying, this is not saying, and I think most of you know this, but let's repeat it. It's not saying that Jesus was cursed. It's not saying that. It's saying that he became a curse. And so we have this Old Testament reference and also in Galatians here to this event mentioned. And we find it also in Acts chapter 5, which is an interesting reference. You might remember that Peter uh, and the boys have been out preaching Jesus and things have been going really good. People are coming to Jesus. Baptisms are taking place all over Jerusalem. But the religious leaders are like, hey, we got we to stop this. And so they're getting punished, right? Getting beaten and thrown in prison. And they're coming out going, woohoo, we got beat up for Jesus, right? So Peter and the guys are back in front of the religious leaders on a given particular day in Acts chapter 5. And they're being challenged by these guys. And, and, and Peter's going, look, we, we, can't, we, we can't obey you. We have to obey God. So we're not going to do what you want us to do, which is to stop preaching Jesus. And, and, and they actually said to them, they said this, the God of our fathers, this is Peter speaking in Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, look at this, he says, whom you killed, <laughs> you killed him, by what? Hanging him on a tree. Well, this enraged them. This enraged them at that time. And a couple of reasons why. Well, it's because, first of all, Paul was accusing them of killing the Messiah. That's pretty crazy. But even more, the Messiah was hung on a tree? Blasphemy. Shameful. God would never curse his Messiah. And that's why in the last verse in chapter 5, I believe it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But we also have this reference in 2 Corinthians 5.25 that Paul also writes on this point where he says this, but for our sake, he made him to look at this, be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, what does this all mean? (laughs) What does this mean that he he became a curse for us, that that God made him to be sin for you and I? Well, once again, we we need to remember what we've just been through. This is all about covenantal relationship. It's all about relationship. It's all about God's covenant. This is the promise of Abraham coming true. The seed of a woman coming true. Jesus, he's here. So first, we know that during this event, Jesus was the one, look at this, punished for us and in our place for the penalty of sin that we should be bearing. We all know that. We should know that. So that means that he bore our curse for us. And then, but, but here, here's what that curse was not. I need to put this out also. This is what this cur- curse was not. It wasn't the false charges made against an innocent man. That, that's not the curse that Jesus had to bear, that he was falsely accused of being a false teacher and all kinds of other things. It isn't the scourging that he took that we talked about a few weeks ago, which was brutal, where they beat him to within an inch of his life. It wasn't the mocking, oh, you, you think you're the Savior, save yourself. It wasn't that. It wasn't the crown of thorns that they placed on his head. It wasn't the nails in his wrists or his feet. The curse was this. This was the curse. Hear this. The curse was the one thing that he feared more than anything else at this point in his life. And he, being fully God yet fully man, he literally did, yes, fear this. He feared it. 
the night before he was betrayed by Judas, you remember when he went to the garden to pray? Well, this is how feared, fearful he was, how afraid Jesus was. It says this in Luke chapter 22. And being in agony, he hadn't been scourged yet. He had not been beaten yet. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we see in his human nature that he was afraid. He was afraid of what he knew was going to take place, which was the cross. What was he afraid of? The pain? The suffering? Possibly. But we actually know what he was afraid of. Because on the third hour, after he'd been hanging there for three hours on the cross, in the heat of the day, in the sun, the most unusual cry came out of him. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lima zavachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, what we need to see is, it is at this very moment that we see what it means for Jesus to have become a curse, to become sin for you and I and for me today. It was at this very moment that the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, who had been with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity, who is now living in the present, is going through a moment in history where he, the synapse, the the thread between him and his heavenly Father, the relationship between him and his heavenly Father, which was eternal, was about to be cut off forever. And he felt it. That's what you need to see. That's what we need to see. One hint of that is in this very verse. He actually, for the first time ever, in referring to God, he calls him, my God, my God. Every other has been Father, Father. And so even in this, we sense that the, the separation is, being, is palpable to Christ. And so, friends, you and I may have lost or been cut off from certain relationships, but the scope, listen, you got to go here. The scope of the cost that Jesus bore, the potential for loss for him of relationship was infinitely beyond anything that you and I will ever experience in this life. Amen? It's way beyond anything that we will ever experience. So please remember this. Without Christ as our Savior... One day, many will be standing before him, relying on their own works to justify them. And the truth is, without Christ's blood covering you, covering me, we will be cut off. We will be cut off. So imagine this. Here's what happened. Jesus bore your curse. He bore my curse. He bore, listen, billions of curses. He didn't die on the cross and bear the curses of just those who would receive him and believe him. It says, for God so loved what? The whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him. He died for billions of people who are cursed. That is what was put on him. And so finally, here's what makes this all beautiful, I believe, despite the hardness that the cross truly was. And I hope you see it today. What it means is this. Jesus didn't sin or become sinful on the cross. He didn't all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, commit sin. 
No, it means that in God's eyes, he was declared legally a curse, legally sin. God treated him as if he was you, as if he was me hanging there, which he wasn't. And now here it is, finally, what it actually is. Here's why. It's called the great transaction, the great exchange in theology and in Scripture. It's so that he could declare you not guilty, me not guilty. So he could declare you righteous, as if you were righteous. And that's why what I said to you earlier is true. On the cross, Jesus became like us before God so that we could become like him before God. That's a blessing. That's an incredible, incredible blessing. So lastly, point number three, very quickly. The response? Really? How do you respond to that? Paul's last verse that we have from him today says this, so that, (laughs) this is a response, this is a conclusion, in Christ Jesus The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to you and to me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're in Christ Jesus here today, you have received the promised spirit by faith. How should you respond? How should we respond to to this great exchange, something that you and I don't deserve? Here's here's the other way of looking at it. I mean, Jesus, Jesus took what he didn't deserve. He took what you and I deserved so that we could get something that we definitely never should have deserved. It's an amazing transaction. So what's the response? I would suggest a few things. Number one, praise him. Come on, praise him. In the midst of the rain, in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of all of the decisions that we've got to make in life, in the midst of your own broken relationships, praise him. He's given you and I the opportunity to have a perfect and restored relationship with him, which ensures nothing but blessings. Want to know how blessed you are? Read Ephesians chapter 1 every day this week, baby. Just read Ephesians number 1. Blessing, 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 blessing. The Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. If these things are opening your minds and your hearts to worshiping and loving God, you have the Holy Spirit here today. If you don't, you need to pray for that. And the other blessings are, of course, no more guilt and no more curses, guys. (laughs) You're not under the curse. You're not under the law. We're under grace, unmerited favor, and forgiveness. Here's one last thing. How should you respond? I think Nike stole Jesus' tagline. Because I think Jesus would just say this. Just go. I think he did say that, didn't he? Just go. Just go. See, here's the greatest point. I'm learning this slowly but surely, and I hope you will. It's in the going, in the midst of all of the things that are troubling in our lives, and Sharing the blessings of what God has done in my life and in your life with others who haven't experienced that yet, this, this is actually how we get to remind ourselves of how blessed we are. And at the same time, we're inviting someone else to be blessed in their relationships, in their marriages, in their work environment, in everything. 
And so I want to encourage you, just go. I know there's a lot to do. I know we're all burdened, but just go a little bit and experience God's blessings today. Pray with me, would you?